as he tried to fall asleep at night, he'd read him bedtime stories. So half an hour later, Mommy opens the door quietly and asks, is he asleep yet? And little Johnny answers, yes, finally. <laughs> Sometimes that's how it goes. Parents fall asleep. Anyways, uh, when difficult times arise, we are really blessed if we have friends who love us and pray for us. By contrast, there are those seasons in life where heartache comes from being betrayed by someone that you love or someone that at least you thought was a dear friend. The reason the songs are so able to bring us encouragement, well, they're obviously the inspired word of God, but he inspired psalmists like David to write things out of personal experience and heartache. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Certainly seems Ahithophel could fit here, if not somebody else. David goes on to say similar heartache in Psalm 55, 12. Uh, for it is not an enemy who repulses me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together and walked in the house of God in the throng. So you can just hear the pain in David's heart as he talks about that. And if you've ever experienced this kind of pain and betrayal and been comforted by the Psalms, realize it came at great personal cost to David by having to experience it. How can we um, know that God is all we need until we find ourselves alone and forsaken? David's words of comfort from the Psalms are only made possible, as I said, because of all that he endured, and we're really learning some of that in our study of the book of 2 Samuel. People may purposely inflict pain or sorrow on us, but we must realize that the whole big picture is that God permits such things and events and people to be in our lives, to reach us, to ultimately be his will for us. This has nothing to do with being in a bad luck situation, but rather it is God working all things, good, bad, ugly, together for good to those that love him. And the reason is it conforms us to his image. So in our study today, we will see how the Lord answered the specific prayer we saw last week of David to cause the counsel of Ahithophel to be foolish to Absalom and his advisors. So this answer to prayer is what the Lord will use, really, to protect David from being murdered at this point in his life by his own son. The rebellion of Absalom seems to bring back uh, contentions between some of the family of Saul and that of David. And the first section here of our chapter reminds us that there are always two sides to a story. And in this situation, David, because of all the circumstances, only had the opportunity to hear one. And he acted on that one. He should have the other side. But we read in chapter 16, as Ziba brings supplies to David, now when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of saddle donkeys, and on them a list of food, varieties of food, and donkeys for the king's household to ride. And then David said, why do you have these? Where's your master's son? And Ziba responds, behold, he's staying in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel restored the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, O Lord. 
Well, because of the swift evacuation, and it was so urgent when they left, there hadn't been time to really plan food resources for the journey ahead. So obviously the sight of food had to be a welcome relief for David and all with him. And coming with these provisions uh, caused David to think Zebo was definitely a concerned friend, bringing these much-needed supplies at a critical time. Only the Lord knows Zebo's heart. But it certainly appears that he is looking out mainly for himself. David even asks him why he's brought these things, as if there's some manner of suspicion about it. And Ziba doesn't really answer. He just says, well, this food is for your nourishment and refreshment. Whatever his motive, Ziba declares he's willing to help David, while at the same time conveniently accusing Mephibosheth of total disloyalty. And David's told by Ziba that this son of Jonathan, whom David really had adopted, had stayed back hoping the house of Israel was going to be restored to him. This accusation appears to be false, as we'll see in chapter 19, and truthfully it really made no sense because this rebellion was not about the house of Saul and David. This was about David and his son Absalom. And even if Absalom and David had been killed in battle, the kingship would not have gone to Mephibosheth. One of David's sons would have taken over. So not until chapter 19 will Mephibosheth get to present his side of the story and defend himself. David was led to believe this young man whom he had loved and adopted and invited to be a part of his family had turned on him too. Ziba appears to be a very ambitious man who is maybe perhaps is tired of working for Mephibosheth and wants to do the work that he's doing for his family and his own children directly. So Ziba got what he asked for because David was so distracted by all the events that were going on. He took the word of Ziba as truth without hearing all the facts. And again, what a great reminder when you're hearing a friend uh, express to you the heartache of their situation, <laughs> realize that there's another side to the story that's usually kind of left out or at least changed a bit from the other person's perspective, at least. And that brings us to David being cursed. <clears throat> In this next section, we have a man that's loyal to the house of Saul. And as David and his company make their way through the territory of Benjamin, David comes under verbal attack and abuse from a relative of Saul. Shimei was on a path parallel to the one of David. Likely David was in a ravine and he was up above, shouting, throwing stones, throwing dirt, trying to hit him. This man hated David and wasn't afraid to tell him so. Apparently he believed that David had greatly wronged this particular tribe of Benjamin. And notice that he, his uh, attacks are exaggerated and really blown out of proportion. The facts are not accurate. This man did not care about the nation of Israel. His focus was on revenge. Hatred and bitterness that is left unchecked has a way of distorting truth and reality. You know that's true because you look through the lens of your bitterness and perceive everything everyone says in light of that. And it distorts reality. With ugly words and hurling stones, Shimei wishes David to get out of the land, calls him a man of bloodshed, a murderer, a worthless fellow. He yells out that David losing the throne was God's retribution to David. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, the Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. This is absolutely not true. Uh, David had no part in the death of Saul or his sons. They died on a battlefield. As you recall, David did everything he could to not touch the Lord's anointed Saul. <clears throat> the heart of this man's complaint was that David 
now sat on the throne where a Benjamite used to sit. It is true that David was a warrior. He was a man of bloodshed. He had killed countless enemies of Israel. The part that must have struck David like a knife was to think of Uriah, whom he had seen murdered. At this point, one of David's commanders wants to cut off the guy's head. And then David says to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more this, this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him, Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of cursing this day. Obviously, it was expected that one of David's own soldiers would uh, want to defend the king. As you recall, Abishai, David's nephew, one of his generals, always seemed to act rashly, and he perceived execution as always the way to go. You know, we saw that early in our studies. And even though Abishai uh, saw this man as a worthless, despised dog, David restrained his actions. Time and events would have the truth come out. And at this most painful moment in David's life, what is the real crisis is that his son, whom he loves, Absalom, is trying to kill him and take his throne. This bitter man screaming out all this anger and venom is not David's main concern and not something David even wants to address at this point. This is not the time to retaliate. And perhaps there is something constructive that the Lord wants to use what this man is saying. David, he obviously realized that ultimately all of this was part of God's discipline on him. That's what he learned when he was confronted by Nathan about his sin. David exercises a great deal of self-control and humility of spirit in this situation. Shimei cared nothing about the Lord's anointed, nor breaking the law. Exodus 22:23 says, Thou shalt not revile the judges, nor curse the ruler of thy people. But his malicious venting during the worst possible time of the life of David was wicked. And again, he did not speak the truth about Saul's death. But David knew there was some truth in what he was saying because he did murder Uriah. And he knew, you know what, he deserved to be cursed. He deserved to be stoned. He deserved to be dead, according to the law of God, that God had forgiven him. So he spared Shimei, though this man was guilty of sinful behavior and attitude, and he would be responsible to God for that. In verses 13 and 14, the abuses just keep being hurled, pelted with stones and clumps of dirt thrown at them as they traveled, more hurtful words, everybody ducking, trying not to be hit by this crazed man. David's forced exile was filled with so much heartache and betrayal. Yet David believed that God would remove all of these thorns in his life one day, and David trusted the Lord by not retaliating. Not everybody comes through this type of hurtful affliction from people the way David did. When we don't see it as the hand of God, when we don't overlook or forgive and become bitter, we fail to see how God's plan for us could be good, even though it includes these type of painful events. Bitter people fail to see how God can take these hurtful moments in one's life and then weave them into doing a work of the Spirit of God in our lives to make us more like Christ and more effective for a future ministry you know nothing about. I remind you of the verse from Hebrews 12:15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. 
David is a great example to us. Absalom then seeks advice. Verse 15, Then Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And now it came about when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king. By the way, if I say the wrong name, you know, these are tongue twister words. You know who I'm talking about. Anyway, the A, Absalom, the A, Ahithophel. Uh, Absalom arrived uh, thinking he's in control. He comes into the palace, no doubt sitting on the throne, and with Ahithophel at his side as advisor, I mean, success was absolutely to be sure. Hushai arrives, and he surprises Absalom, who then questions his loyalty to David. But Hushai assures Absalom that uh, the one the Lord has chosen, he would give absolute allegiance to. This had to be a very scary moment for Hushai, trying to be convincing, even though he's declaring his loyalty to the Lord's choice. He obviously knows the Lord's choice. It's not Absalom. But Absalom accepts this person as an additional advisor. This is obviously the providence of God working in the mind of Absalom without doing anything with his will, against his will. Absalom was so full of himself that he is blinded by his own ego. And we see the amazing providence of God at work here. Verse 20, Absalom turns initially only to Ahithophel and says, Give your advice. What shall we do? And what advice? Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep house. Then all Israel will hear that you made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. <coughs> Men do not think the way we <laughs> That's your plan. That'll make everybody woohoo go more. Anyways, this once best friend of David offers a shoot advice. Can you imagine how low this is? This was David's confidant advisor, and this is what he's telling his son to do. It's so awful. By doing this vile and public act, as it was intense on the roof for all to see, Absalom would demonstrate then the in the irrevocable breach that there was between him and dad. And this act would make David despise his son and convince others that this revolt was going to go to the fullest extreme. There wasn't going to be any patching up between dad and son. And in doing this act, he was making a public claim also to the throne of David. It was not uncommon for conquering kings to take a previous king's parents. But it's a different blow for a son to do this with his father's went against everything biblical, Leviticus 18, and other places. So again, this public humiliation involving David's concubine was spoken of in chapter 12, as we saw, as punishment for David. David went and took what didn't belong to him, and Absalom's going to do the same. Our sins always neg negatively hurt and impact those around us, whether we realize it or not. Everyone thought the advice that Ahithophel gave was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. I mean, remember the old ad when E.F. Hutton speaks? <laughs> I mean, when Ahithophel opened his mouth, everybody listened. They considered almost on the level of God. <clears throat> the true colors of Ahithophel are seen by this advice. The link with David's adultery, as I said, is clearly made here as David reaps what he has done. He had failed to punish Amnon for the rape of his half-sister. 
Now Absalom was taking all of his anger for their lack of reconciliation to the worst extreme and publicly invading his father's most private world and making sure that he would make his father and he odious. And honestly, you would think it'd be revolting to every single person in Israel who heard about it. At any rate, Ahithophel declared that this act by Absalom would make the hands of all who are with you strong. And next we see the providence of God overruling man's plans. The council of Ahithophel versus the council of Hushai. Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and terrify him so that all the people who are with him will flee. Then I will strike down the king alone. Now Ahithophel gives his second piece of advice. Once he's killed David, like everybody else is going to come home and be at peace with each other. This plan and advice to pursue David obviously would have been successful. He would have murdered David. But God intervened. Ahithophel made a brilliant plan. He knew how, he knew when, he knew where he could take David on and kill him. This was the perfect plan for there to be assurance of success. But God decreed something different. And the providence of God is at work today, just as it was at work in that war room meeting thousands of years ago in Jerusalem. God still governs all those secret meetings of rulers and diplomats, and he rules and overrules selfish schemes and plans of others. They think they're their own plans. As a pagan learned, a pagan man, King Nebuchadnezzar, learned in the days of Daniel, but God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? <clears throat> Seeing this whole political uh, nightmare unfold in scripture ought to give us great peace and assurance and hope that the same almighty, all-powerful God is in control today and ruling the world just as he did back at the time of this meeting. When we see <clears throat> the events in our world spilling out of control, spinning on crazy people who have the control of nuclear bombs and in charge, and all of the political intrigue and stuff going on we know nothing about, we still know who knows exactly what's going on in all the secret meetings in our country. And the God of the universe is in control, <clears throat> and he's bringing everything together for the perfect timing of answering the prayer that we're praying your kingdom come. So all the pieces of the puzzle for the return of Jesus Christ, he is orchestrating, putting into place. The Antichrist will arise, and all the events we've studied, <clears throat> excuse me, in the past about um, the Antichrist and tribulation are all being set up. So he has this in control. <clears throat> it is stunning that after this military plan has been presented by Absalom, that he would even, I mean by Hithophel, that Absalom would even seek out Hushai's advice. <clears throat> so Hushai said to Absalom, this time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. I bet you could hear a pin drum said that. <clears throat> Hushai hadn't even been in the room at this when this first plan was presented, but he was brought in and brought up to speed, and now he has to really think on his feet what to say. He makes a general judgment, first off, that this advice is just not good advice. And then he begins to shoot holes in the whole plan. You know your father. You know his men. <clears throat> Hushai said, 
Um, he gives all kinds of conjectures that David and his men uh, could possibly slaughter Absalom's men and defeat the whole coup. His dad is like a female uh, bear robbed of her cubs. His soldiers are, are talented militiamen. David won't even be with them. He'll be hiding. They'll be protecting him, and on and on it goes. <clears throat> so it's with wisdom from the Lord that Hushai destroys the, destroys the confidence in this scheme, a scheme rather, that once had been presented by Ahithophel. Had God not been at work in this meeting, really, when you think about it, Hushai's advice may have seemed like a personal attack on Ahithophel. And they could have been like, oh yeah, you're still loyal to David. What are you saying to the wisest man there is? But he continued to shoot holes in the plan, <clears throat> and others began to go, hmm, it doesn't look like a good plan. And certainly the valiant warriors of David would not sit, David wouldn't sit by idly. It would be a total mistake by Absalom to underestimate the strength of his adversaries. So presenting the case of having a large army uh, seemed like a better plan, not just 12,000 men that Ahithophel is going to lead and take care of. No, no, no. Hushai says, you need to get everybody, like the sand of the sea from Dan to Beersheba, every man in the whole country needs to come and go behind you. And then he plays on his, his pride. You take the place of honor. You lead this vast army with your hair blowing behind <laughs> and everyone following the life of five and a half months. <clears throat> anyway, such a plan seemed uh, to guarantee success without everyone being at such a great risk. Plus, this plan made Absalom the big hero, hard for a very arrogant, proud man to resist. And of course, Ahithophel would immediately see the incredible weakness in this proposed plan. But everyone else was convinced that Hushai's plan was best. What is really going on here is summarized so profoundly in verse 14. I, this is the best verse in our studies of today. The counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And why is that? For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. Mm -hmm. The Lord has all of this in control. And people are doing what they're doing of their own free will. And yet God is sovereignly in control. So Absalom saw himself, as I said, as the head of a huge and victorious army. And this delay of gathering all these people from all over the corners of the country is what David was made him uh, have more time to get away, to get recruitments and reinforcements, and to pick the right terrain in which to go to battle. Hushai then sends word through the spy network, which we saw last week. He gets words to the priest of what the two plans were. And he says, now therefore send quickly and tell David, do not spend the night at the forest in the wilderness, but by all means cross over, that is the Jordan, or else the king and all the people who are with him will be destroyed. I mean, Hushai didn't know if there'd be a go back to plan A instead of plan B. So once the two priests were told, they relayed the message to a servant girl to their two sons, who had the mission as spies to get the news to David immediately. It appears that the priests were under suspicion of supporting David, so their two sons had been sent from the south of Jerusalem, but they were spotted and reported. So now we have army men going out after these two men. But how like the Lord to provide a couple in a tiny little village, Bahurim, east of Mount of Olives, who had them hide in a dry well. And then the wife sprinkled it with dry grain on top of the lid. 
It's amazing that nothing was known by about these men hiding there. I mean, a little village, everybody knows everybody's business. Not to mention little kids out playing. Oh, I saw two men. You know, they went over there. I mean, there was none of that. The Lord was completely protecting these spies. Absalom's soldiers were sent then by this woman on a wild goose chase, looking for the two priests. And what bravery of this man and uh, woman who were willing to risk their lives to help these spies. And, and not everyone apparently was on board with Absalom being the king. So having seen many of an espionage movie in my day, it's easy for me to just kind of imagine this whole scene, the spies hiding, listening to the words being spoken, hearts pounding, music getting scary. <laughs> and though the spies were delayed, they safely reached David, who took their advice immediately, and they crossed the Jordan in the dark. And remember all the children who are with the 600 soldiers and all their families, so everyone's crossing in the dark and arrived by morning. This was a, a better place of safety to have this barrier between them and Absalom. So the Lord, providentially in his care, protected David and everybody who was with him in this ordeal. I remind you that God is faithful to keep his word to his children. And though David knew he would suffer uh, conflict as part of God's judgment, he also knew that God had made very specific promises to him and a precious Davidic covenant that God would keep his promises. That brings us to the suicide of Ahithophel. Now when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, arose, and went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order, and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. The Bible just presents this as a historical fact what happened. There's no comment here on the sanctity of life, which is found everywhere else in Scripture. Many of us know firsthand the sorrow of someone that we've known or loved murdering themselves. And it is such a grievous, heartbreaking subject. We saw in verse 23 of the last chapter that Ahithophel had been at the very height of his power and influence because of his incredible brilliance and dependability to give the best, best advice possible. But now this powerhouse had not been listened to. This wise man must have seen immediately that when the advice of Hishai was taken instead of his, the result would not be the death of David. Certainly, the entire coup was about to go south. And when David returned to reign as king in Jerusalem, what was going to happen to him? Absalom had forfeited the advantage um, of this wise strategic, uh, strategy that Ahithophel had brought. And Ahithophel knew that there was no future for him anymore. He would likely face death uh, for treason against David. He has, a, he has a very calculating plan, which is often the case. He went home, put the affairs of his house in order, and likely hung himself. This one-time invaluable counselor to David, who had turned his traitor to him, had decided that this was the only thing to do. Maybe Hithophel had never faced rejection or a rejection like this, and it was a great humiliation to him. This combined with his own disloyalty to David and the soon defeat of Absalom brought him to this very dark, dark his death left Absalom without any reliable direction for his rebel cause. And as is so often the case, those who take their own life do not seem to think about the ones they leave behind. We can't get in the mind of a traitor like Ahithophel, but certainly what was of greatest importance to him in his life was now gone. 
his power, his prestige, most likely were his God and reason for living. And once they were gone, his proud heart had nothing to live for. Jeremiah 9.23 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, let not a mighty man boast in his might, let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Ahithophel's plan was to murder David, but when that plan failed, he decided to murder himself. There is not much thought for the sanctity of life. One can't help but think of a similar traitor that we read about in the New Testament. Judas spent three years with Jesus and betrayed him with affectionate He threw away the money that he had gotten for the betrayal and did the same thing that Ahithophel did. There was no remorse, there's, or there was no repentance, just remorse. However, Let's talk about a true believer who's come to faith in Jesus, who have come to that place where they realize they're a sinner, and they come to the cross and realize the only way to be forgiven is through Jesus Christ and putting our faith and trust in him. That is the great truth, that forgiveness is possible through Jesus' death on the cross, and that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So, does this include every sin? that anyone would do, a believer would do? Does this include murder, suicide? Of course it does. We just studied David. He's a murderer. He murdered Uriah. He was forgiven. He's, that's the death of Christ. Think about it. Who has not struggled with murder in your own heart? Every time you've hated, God says, you've murdered. So don't have some arrogant view of yourself that you're above such behavior because then you don't really know how wicked your own heart is. From God's perspective, hating is murder. And this is why the cross is so precious to believers. And though it was so hideous for Jesus, who knew no sin, to actually bear the wrath of God for all these kinds of wicked sins, of everyone who had ever believed in him, that everything they'd ever commit, he bore on the cross. He paid the debt in full, past, present, future. Of course it's wrong to hate. Of course it's wrong to take a life whether it's someone else or your own, Satan is a liar, and he is the murderer from the beginning, and he is ever present in moments of deep despair to tempt the downcast with this sin as being the only way For David, life has brought grief. Shimei has cursed him. Ahithophel has turned against him. A rebellious son whom he loved wants to kill him. He is running for his life from his own son. But this very grief-stricken soul gives to us some of the sweetest songs that he sang in the midst of all of this. When you read Psalm 3, Psalm 4, 61, 62, 63, 143, you see his thoughts in the darkest night. When he says, Thou, O Lord, art a shield to me. You are the lifter of my head. You are the one who sustains me and brings me peace to even be able to sleep. May we learn from David the same utter dependence and absolute confidence in our great God. Our loving Father will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Therefore, we have reason to have joy even in the midst of betrayal and heartache and evil words from people about us, knowing our loving Father has sovereignly allowed these people and what they do 
and the pain that they inflict, he has allowed them to have that in our life for a time for a higher purpose. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. He has another big plan going on that we don't have a clue. But I know for one thing, it is to make us more like him. So let's not fight him when he answers our prayers to be more spiritual and then he sends the people into our lives to inflict us to make us more spiritual. <laughs> Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and every subject, every heartache, every human experience is presented in scripture, especially as we look at the Old Testament heroes and not such great heroes. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be like David, not retaliatory, not um, angry at men mocking him in disloyalty, and not taking advantage that he could have ended someone's life to appease his own frustration at the evil being done to him, Lord. I pray that we would trust you in the midst of all these things, just as David did. I pray that the Psalms would come to life for us, knowing the circumstances in which they did. In Jesus